You listen to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts of the Bellator Christie Podcast, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Avalon. From the mystical and majestic mountains of northwestern North Carolina, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. My name is Dr. Brian Chilton, and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes to an hour that we have together. If you're new to the Bellator Christie podcast, uh, we discuss matters of theology, history, apologetics, biblical studies, philosophy, and a whole lot more. Uh, next week, we'll begin a new series on bibliology, uh, which should take us through the rest of the year. Our first episode will be on the Bible, and so we'll answer que- answer the question, what is the Bible? And we'll give you all sorts of information on the themes of the Bible, genres, writers, and other characteristics that might make the Bible so special. Uh, if you're listening to our recorded podcast, we do want to invite you to join us every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, you can find the live show on YouTube, our YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. You can also catch it uh, on my Facebook page. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Dr. Brian Chilton, Dr. Brian Chilton, uh, you can find it. Don't have to be subscribed to my page because we, we share it to the public. Uh, so you can catch it there. But if you're listening to the live show and you want to hear the recording, it is available. You can catch all of our podcasts that we've ever recorded. Uh, on several different platforms. We're on iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, really anywhere podcasts are found. So we encourage you to go check us out, hit subscribe. And uh, the best thing about it is it absolutely free. It's absolutely free. Uh, so go by and check it out. So we've got a great podcast on tap for you tonight. So the, we want to ask the question, have you ever looked for God and not found him? Uh, perhaps you've been in a situation where God seems so distant. If you've ever had, if you've ever been in a situation like this, then you've encountered a theological conundrum called the hiddenness of God. Why is it that God does not more openly reveal himself to the world? Skeptics like J.L. Schellenberg argue that God, uh, because God does not more openly reveal himself, then it must mean in some sense that he doesn't exist. So how does a Christian respond to this accusation? Well, today's guest has an answer for the problem of divine hiddenness. We're talking about Dr. Josh Waltman, Associate Professor of Theology and Apologetics at Liberty University and uh, former coordinator of the Learning Commons at Jerry Falwell Library at Liberty University. Folks, if you've never been, if you've never been to Liberty and seen the library, you've got to make a trip, if nothing else, just to see that library. It's phenomenal. So Dr. Josh Waltman wrote a book uh, where he engages the issue of divine hiddenness entitled, Why Does God Seem So Hidden? A Trinitarian Theological Response to J.L. Schellenberg's Problem of Divine Hiddenness. 
is published by Pickwick, an imprint of Withenstock Publishers. Uh, Dr. Waltman, welcome to the Bellator Christie Podcast. Well, it's so good to be here, and thank you for a really, really awesome intro there. Man, that was a mouthful. Uh, it's, you might have done this once or twice before. I'm getting the impression. Uh, just a few times here and there. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got the three stooges on your shirt. So I didn't know you actually had a shirt of me there. So that's pretty cool. Uh, it's only the two of us here on the podcast. but <laughs> got to get a third. Yeah, this was actually a gift but from my sister. I can't remember if it was a birthday or a uh, or Christmas or what, but I, I, I wear it any chance I get. I love the Three Stooges. <laughs> oh, man, talking about hiddenness and talking about the Three Stooges, they go hand in hand. Well, I tell you, the older I get, the more I look like Curly. I'm, I'm kind of growing thin on the top, so I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to reach him, I believe. <laughs> Just embrace the bald and beard, my friend, as the wisdom goes from the head down into the face. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I love it. So let's let's jump right into this. So I kind of gave just a very brief overview. Uh, so what do we mean by divine hiddenness? Yeah, you know, I think I think you'd hit the nail on the head there in the intro. But you know, there there are, are sort of sort of different levels when we talk about hiddenness of God. Like there's a sense in which God God is hidden from us in that He's infinite and we're finite, and we can't possibly understand all the ins and outs of who God is in His very being. So he's hidden to that degree. But really, when we talk about the problem of divine hiddenness, we're talking about this sort of phenomenon where, you know, both Christians will experience it, but atheists tend to use it and wield it as an argument to substantiate their position. And it goes something like this. If God is all loving and all powerful, and he wants a relationship because he's all loving and all powerful, and he has all the resources that allow him to have that relationship, then there are moments in people's lives, the atheist will say, where they are perfectly open to a relationship with God if there was enough evidence for them to, in fact, believe. And so if there are moments of openness and God is all loving and powerful and has the resources to make that relationship happen, and yet he doesn't provide enough evidence to convince these people that are supposedly open to him. So the atheist says God does not exist. Now that's what happens on the atheist side, but I would argue, and I've seen this, and maybe you would say the same thing in your own ministry on the ministry side of things for years, I would, I would be pastoring. I was a bivocational pastor and goodness gracious, I could talk to someone that just lost a family member, maybe a son or a daughter or mom or dad and they would say, I understand why this happened. You know, suffering occurs in a world where there's real freedom of will and choice. I can, I can get my mind wrapped around that. But what I don't understand is if God loves me, why doesn't he make his presence more known to comfort me? And so that there's sort of that angle on it too. Even as believers, we deal with and struggle with this. And then on the worst side, the atheist takes it and makes an argument out of it. So I think we kind of see this spectrum of the problem, so to speak, uh, in both areas. And that, and that is so true. And I'll, I've noticed, a lot, well, experienced and have observed that, you know, with emotions, your emotions are at a fever pitch, especially with end of life issues, losing family members. Maybe you, you thought God was going to step in and he didn't and you need to feel his presence so closely and you don't. Mm-hmm. And you hear an argument from a skeptic like that, then that really 
may lead a person down that path more easily going through just because of the emotions that, that they're experiencing at that time. Yeah. You know, I, one of the things I point out in the book, and I think it's just, it's just so profound, at least to me from my own experience, you know, if you think of the 150 Psalms that make up the Psalter, you know, the vast majority, if we were to categorize them, which scholars do, the, the, the biggest category is the Psalm, Psalms of lament. Yeah. And so with lament Psalms, you even see these instances where people are crying out, God, you know, where are you? Why are you asleep? Wake up. I don't see you in my life. Why won't you intercede on my behalf? And so if, if you think of the Psalms as sort of being reflective of a person's life, like the full spectrum of life and you get on that, on that uh, spectrum, you get an awful lot of lament and crying out to God. It seems like this is just, this is part of the human experience. Absolutely. Cause I've heard of many people in so, in so many different occasions say, well, I know it's wrong to question God. I know it's wrong to ask why. But as you said, it, with the lament Psalms, mm-hmm. they're doing that very thing. God, where are you? When you? Why don't you show up? It's such a powerful thing that you find very, very true to the human experience. And of course, it's the re- you know revelation of God, but very true to the human experience as well. Yeah. You know, if, if we're going to ask the question, if we have the question in our mind and heart, God, where are you? Why don't you seem to care about me? Why won't you wake up? Um, I don't think we can hide that question from God. He That's sees, right. he sees our minds and our hearts. Yeah. And so the worst thing we can do is just to act like it's not there. I think the best thing we can do is actually bring that to God and ask him to help us with it. So he already knows that we're dealing with it. Amen. Very true. So if you will describe, uh, you mentioned J.L. Schellenberg's problem of divine hiddenness. Can you describe his argument and, and what what he presents. Yeah. A little context here. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that the listener maybe has never read a whole bunch of atheistic philosophy. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I had to read a lot of it for uh, preparation for the book here. Um, Schellenberg was, is a very prominent and very thoughtful atheist. I mean, he, he is an incredible thinker. I, I want to give him props. Um, he is a Cornell graduate. And uh, my understanding of his sort of journey is that he was a Christian and decided to give up on his faith. He deconstructed his faith to the point of becoming agnostic uh, because in large part of his educational journey and this issue. So Mm -hmm. when he went into the, um, went into doing a PhD there at Cornell, uh, he, he came out on, on the, the end of atheism using this argument to be perfectly honest. I came into it uh, with the same questions and the, and the same sorts of doubts and came out on the opposite end. Um, so, so Schellenberg, you know, just for the listener here, Schellenberg, I think represents the best sort of version of the argument. I mean, there are other versions out there. His is the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to look at what the atheist sort of thinks, his represents the pinnacle of it. So he is, he's got a, a very sophisticated argument, philosophically speaking, and he's got multiple versions of it. One is what's called a deductive version. And for the listener here, a deductive argument is, a, is an argument that argues for certainty. Um, but he also have an induct, he has an inductive version and he's dealing more with analogy to help you understand, you know, the context of his deductive argument. So just to kind of introduce the, the listener here, let me, let me explain the inductive version. He basically says this, imagine that you've got a child out in the forest 
trying to find his parent, crying out to God, desperate for the parent, uh, desperate for you know the parent to come to his aid. He's in need. He's never met the parent before, but the parent surely must be there, he thinks. Uh, and he's going through a severe amount of anxiety. And he says, what kind of parent, if the parent could get to the child and the parent loved the child, what kind of parent would just ignore the child's um, desire to have relationship? And so the fact that um, these kinds of scenarios exist, according to Schellenberg, is evidence that God doesn't exist, at least not the God of Christianity. And so to kind of carry that over and to the deductive version here, um, if God is great, and, and by great, I mean perfect, perfect in every possible way. If God is great, he's all powerful, all loving, desires relationship, then if there is a person that is open, any person could just be one person of the course of all of human history that is open to relationship with God. If that person does not see enough evidence to convince him that God exists, then we can therefore conclude that the God of Christianity does not exist because he's like that derelict parent that refused to come to the aid of the child. So that's the argument in a nutshell. And obviously it's much more sophisticated than that, but just for the, for the sake of summary here, that's how we can kind of start. Absolutely. So, so in other words, to, 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 to break it down even more, would you say it was, he's saying that because God is not readily available, hasn't readily made himself available to everyone or made his existence known, knowable to everyone that he argues against God's existence in that case? Well, I think what he would want to say is God doesn't have to make himself known to everyone, um, but only those that are open. Only so, open. So, so he may say, look, OK, of course, God may hide himself, right, mm-hmm. conceal himself from those that want nothing to do with him. That that would be justifiable, he thinks. Right. Uh, and I think we would we would probably agree with that. Yeah. Um, and so he says, even if even if there's just one person again at any point in human history that fits the criteria of being open, like willing to have relationship and yet still is unconvinced, then that means that God did not do what God should have done by virtue of being a truly great and loving being. Wow. So. What counter argument do you use to respond to uh, Schellenberg's argument is his argumentation here? Yeah. You know, so from an apologetic standpoint, I do have an argument. And if, uh, if your listener wants to, to get into the nitty gritty, it's a pretty weighty argument. I think, I think people uh, would really enjoy reading the book. Um, but I, I will say this, uh, just to kind of preface what I'm, what I'm about to get into in terms of argument. This is a complicated issue. And one of the things that I think Schellenberg is doing when he talks about the parent and the child and this analogy, you know, I think he's oversimplifying the relationship that we have with God and how we can do theology to understand some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. And so he would want to say, well, yeah, of course, like this is immediately intuitive to everyone that God wouldn't be that way. And my answer to that in part is, well, actually, it's not so intuitive because we're dealing with a relationship between God and his creatures, not between a human parent and a human child. Yeah, and that, that changes the game, right? Like the, the kind of relationship and the kind of communication that needs to occur is mm-hmm. going to be very different. And so I, we can talk about this. Uh, uh, we probably will, I assume, in, in more detail. But the, the real sort of crux of what I would want to say is that um, 
God is communicating in ways to bring about a certain type of relationship with, with us, like a relationship that is spiritually oriented, that mm-hmm. is a communal. It has a communal quality to it. And so he's communicating to bring that about because he cares about us on a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. And so since that's the case, the, the types of evidence and the types of communication that he's provided, um, those types of evidence, you have to be open to that. So to say that you're open to the evidence is not just a question of whether or not you're intellectually ready to receive some sort of information in a propositional sense. You also have to actually have a posture before God of willing to being willing to hear from the creator as the create the creative being. And so I argue in the book that there's no instance, none of any instance where you've got an atheist or agnostic who is in fact open to God in the ways that I'm describing. So I guess in a matter of speaking, they not only have to be open with the mind, they need to be open with the heart. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, of course, a lot more detail goes into that, but, you know, and I realize like that's, that's what we hear in church is right. Like we need to listen with our minds and our hearts. And that's exactly what I'm getting at. Like, what does it mean? to be willing to listen to God with our hearts. Um, and and um, the, if we're not willing to do that, how does that change our perception of the truth with our minds? Mm. And I would say that the atheists, what they're essentially doing is that they're misinterpreting the evidence that is readily available, the revelation from God that's readily available, but they're seeing it through a lens and a posture that is spiritually like in spiritual rebellion against God. And that changes what they think is plausible. That makes, that makes really good sense. makes really good sense. So how would you, you know, maybe we have a listener out there uh, that that's asking, well, what would it mean to listen with the heart? How, How would you describe that? Yeah. So in the book, I will say I come up with, you know, it, five criteria, so to speak. I call it criteria for openness. Um, and there may be more. There might, there might be more descriptions. And certainly the Lord in his word talks about, you know, open ears and open eyes, spiritually speaking. Um, but at least there are five things that we might say this includes. One would be, I think you have to be open to a supernatural worldview. Um, if, if you believe all there is, is matter and material and the physical hard stuff of the universe, then you're not going to see the kinds of spiritual communication God is offering. Right. And so you're going to be closed off to that. The second would be, um, you have to, you have to be willing. I I use this term in the book called spiritual disposition. Mm -hmm. Here's what I mean that by that you're, you're willing to have a posture before God that recognizes that the posture is there. Um, you know, you can't just say, I have, I'm not a spiritual being. I have no spiritual, um, posture. You have to recognize, no, 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 no. I'm coming to this thing with spiritual eyes, whether closed or open. Okay. So you have to be open in that sense. Uh, the third that I, they come up with here is you have to be willing to be morally transformed. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, if there is a creator, if there is evidence out there, and you come to the table to look at the evidence he's provided, the revelation he's provided, and you've already decided that you don't want to change the sin in your life, then guess what? You're going to have a built-in bias that changes how you calculate the probability of the evidence on the table. So you have to be willing to change your entire life before the creator. 
the fourth would be a willingness to commune with the Holy Spirit. And you say, man, uh, you know, of course, atheists aren't going to, aren't going to necessarily meet that, that criteria. Uh, they're just going to outright reject the spirit. Uh, well, that's, that's kind of the point. That's kind of what I'm getting at here is that God is revealing himself spiritually. And in the book, I talk about why he has to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're unwilling to hear from the spirit, if you're unwilling to recognize the supernatural realm, you're going to be closed off to that. And then finally, sort of the pinnacle of all of these criteria would be this one. You have to be willing to have worshipful submission to God. And I'm not saying that you have to start from a point of worshiping a God that you're not sure is there. But I am saying that you have to be willing to say that if God is there, I'm willing to submit before him hmm. uh, because he's God. And hmm. so if you come to the table and look at the evidence and you're saying from the get go, I want nothing to do with any of those five things, then you will inevitably have a bias that will color how you look at the evidence. Very good. <laughs> I, I not only think you hit a home run, I think you hit a grand slam. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, look, here's the thing. I think probably atheists or agnostics would want to say this. They're like, well, look, none of that stuff is real anyway, so why should I be open to it? Or, you know, why doesn't God overcome uh, my closed offness to that area, to the supernatural and so forth. Well, okay, but that's that's kind of besides the point. What we're saying is you are closed. You mm-hmm. are not open. And so therefore, on your own admission, according to your own argument, uh, God doesn't have to reveal himself to you because you're not in a place where you're going to receive the revelation anyway. It's kind of like David Hume and his old take on miracles and history. He kind of poses his argument that you can't prove miracles exist or happen because <laughs> miracles don't happen. I mean, it's kind of that scenario. <laughs> Talk about a bias. I mean, goodness gracious. I, you know, I think what happens a lot of times in our culture, Brian, and, you know, maybe, maybe you can speak to this a little bit too. It just seems like because we, we, we kind of grow up breathing the air of the enlightenment that we assume that science gives us absolute truth and it's somehow a greater means of learning than, than say religion or uh, some of these other forms or philosophy. Um, or we, we just tend to believe that the atheist is more objective than the, or the atheistic scientist is more objective than the Christian theologian or something like that. And honestly, I just, for the life of me, cannot understand that way of thinking. Um, you know, we all come to information with a worldview. And if you start thinking that you're, you're neutral and I'm not as a Christian, well, guess what? That, that your, your worldview is showing, your bias is showing. And, uh, and I think that's inherently problematic. I, I know I'm, I'm running a rabbit here and I I promise to get us back on track after this, but I got to share this. I'm, I'm a huge, I love, studying astronomy, uh, mm. cosmos. Well, James Webb Space Telescope, they're taking images of deep space with infrared that Hubble just can't take because it just doesn't have the capacity to look at the far distant uh, materials, things out in the universe. Well, they're becoming more perplexed about the universe is revealing things that they're thinking, wait a minute, that didn't, that didn't work. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Mm. And, I, and I saw on a scientific uh, magazine o- online 
that, that they even said this, that we're coming to a point that science cannot answer how the universe came to be. We're going to have to start depending more on philosophy. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's what's that old, um, I forget where this is coming from, but there was that old expression. It's like the scientists are climbing this mountain. And when they get to the top, a hand reaches out from over the cliff and pulls them up. And all of a sudden there were the theologians all along. <laughs> it's like, it's like, uh, you're going to find it out one day. Uh, it just exactly. might as well be today. So. <laughs> Well, let me steer us back on target here, back on track. So I found your comments on theological analogy quite interesting. I've I've actually been going through uh, the Summa Theologica, just a massive book. And my goodness, so powerful, uh, the book there by Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas uses the analogical approach in his works. So what are the limitations of of the uh, analogical approach? And how does this impact the way that... um, that uh, uh, Schellenberg uh, uh, understands divine hiddenness. Yeah, man, you talk about a big question. Uh, let me <laughs> unpack this a little bit uh, for the listener may not even know that what we're talking about when we talk about the analogical approach. So uh, what Aquinas is trying to do, he's trying to, he's trying to figure out like, how can we talk about the attributes of God, mm-hmm. you know, um, because there's a, there's a problem here when it comes to God, he is completely unique. There is no other one like him. We are not like him, um, at least not fully, because we're creatures and he's the creator and he's infinite and we're finite. And so there are some serious differences uh, between us and him that makes it difficult for us to to sort of talk about who he is. I mean, our, think about this, right? Like putting God into our minds is like taking an ocean and putting it into a bucket. Like you just can't do it. And so what Thomas Aquinas is trying to talk to, to speak to there is uh, when I say that God is good or loving, um, we, what do I mean by that? Well, it's not exactly like the love that I have. My point of reference is my love or my wife's love or something like that. It's not exactly like that. Um, it's also not completely different from it either. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to say anything about God. Right. Yeah. So he's saying, well, it's kind of like an analogy. Um, what we have in terms of love and goodness on the human level is like an analogy for what happens in the perfect version of that in God. And um, one of the things I talk about in the book is um, there are elements of similarity in the analogy that help us to say, yes, this is a meaningful thing that we're saying. We really mean something when I say uh, God is good and God is loving. But, but like any good analogy, there are also significant points of dissimilarity. Mm-hmm. And so what Schellenberg, I think, is doing in his argument um, is he's he's thinking about God as the perfect loving parent as though it's like a human parent that's just way better. Um, and I think, you know, we can't, we can't take it that far. You know, when we talk about, um, human love, God's love is not like idealized human love. It's, it's grander than that. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. And there are some meaningful differences between God's love and our love. So here would be an example. God's love is motivated by self glory and motivated by jealousy. <laughs> um, yeah. And hopefully your listeners like, oh, 
Uh, human love shouldn't be motivated by self-glory or jealousy. Uh, I'm pretty sure I could ask my wife if that would be okay for me to love her that way. And she might would say, absolutely not. Um, but what's the difference there? Uh, God is God. This is his universe. And he really is worthy of worship, whereas I am not. And so I guess my point in all of this is, um, when Schellenberg talks about analogy, we have to recognize that there are limits. And so his word picture about a, a kid out there in the forest, you know, crying out for God, that's not the same thing as what we've got when it comes to God. Amen. That's one of the things I love about Aquinas in his depiction. And it was something I never really thought, thought about because we talk about love and we understand love from a certain perspective, but it's nothing compared to the depths of God's love. It's just a whole other genre, a whole other universe uh, of, of, of love. And then I love that illustration you gave of jealousy and, and then that, that just to, for God that works for us. It Not does so much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I guess we need to talk about, cause on your, on your tagline here, you talk about the Trinitarian theological response. I, I think we probably need to talk a little bit about the triunity of God here. So how does understanding the greatness of God in his triunity Help us with the problem of divine hiddenness. Okay, so let's let's follow my line of thought. We we, we have to talk about um, a perfectly great God, great in every possible way, but our reason has limits. The analogies have limits. So of course we need scripture to help us to know. We, we use the the phrase a norm or a measuring stick, so to speak, mm-hmm. to know what does the greatness of God really look like. And in scripture, we get the fact that he's triune. He is a trinity. I think there's other arguments we can, we can make about why God, um, has to be, has to be triune beyond just scripture. But nevertheless, scripture tells us that he is triune. Um, so the biblical account of God's love is that it exists within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like the perfect love, the most relational love. The, the, the love that is maximally great, mm-hmm. uh, greater than all of the, the, the very love that Schellenberg is saying God must exhibit that exists not between God and us per se, but between the persons of the Godhead. Now, so we ask ourselves questions. What kind of love is that? Well, um, a couple of things that I, I point out in the book is uh, first and foremost, it's love that is I'm going to use a Trinitarian term. I hope it's okay. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Perichoretic. It's Mm. self-giving. It fits together in the most intimate of ways. And most importantly, it is spiritually oriented. It is communal in its nature. And so God invites us into that love. And he gives us revelation that invites us into the perichoretic union and communion of the Godhead. Like we are in Christ as he is in the Father. Right. That's the language we get. So, yeah, I mean, so, right. So like the love of God is so much, it's like a four or five dimensional view of the love of God that Schellenberg and the atheists are completely missing. Um, And so with that, God is revealing himself, not so that we can just affirm in our minds that God exists, but rather so that we can know experientially the perichoretic communion and that love, that great love that's in the Godhead. And so that's why we have to be open to the supernatural worldview and to the 
uh, the, the sort of revelation that comes from the spirit. And like, if we're not open in that sense, we're actually missing out on the best parts of God's revelation. Amen. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it, it, and so once you see it from that lens and you reject, uh, materialism and naturalism, it, it opens up the whole door here. Um, you know, and I think too, because God's love is so great and so wonderful, um, and it's spiritually oriented and it's, it's five and six dimensional, you know, it's, it's more than just the flat version of, of love that we think about. Um, once we understand that, we can understand why God seems so hidden. It's actually, it's part of his plan. And I, I can speak to that if you'd like. Absolutely. That's actually bringing up the next question. So how does this understanding of the inner nature of love, God's love, uh, how does this proper understanding help of uh, help us help us with the sticky situation, sticky issues of divine hiddenness? I just love the adjective sticky. Man, uh, <laughs> I wish we could use that more in the podcast here. It's just I got to work it in a few more times. Um, thorny, thorny issues and sticky issues. Um, here's what I'd say is because God is a, an infinite being beyond he's, he's, he's transcendent. He's beyond our minds and mm-hmm. he's holy mm-hmm. and his holiness entails, um, standards and expectations. And, and also because he wants the, the kind of love that's inherently spiritual, all of those factors come together to restrict the kinds of revelation he can give to us. So at least, at least in the sense that he's going to restrict those so that we can have uh, the kind of loving relationship that he wants. In other words, God could manifest in my office right now and say, I'm God. Here I am, you know, bow down to me. Um, now, if he were to do that, I'd have some issues. Number one, it seems mighty coercive, but mm-hmm. the bigger issue is this. How can I interpret that religious experience to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's not a demon or that's not some other deceit, you know, prophet from another religion, whatever it may be, or, or a, an illusion of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I know is because uh, God chooses to reveal himself instead in spiritual ways. Now, here's my word picture, my analogy. OK, uh, imagine that you're in a pitch black room and in this pitch black room. You can see nothing. You can't make out anything, but you really want to know what's in there with you. You're, you're able to feel around enough to know that there's a door in this room. And on the other side of the door, let's just go with, go with me here. There's a, an, an un, unimaginable light. That light is so bright. It's an incredible light. It's beyond anything that you can imagine. If we were to swing the door wide open and let that light into the room, it actually would blind us because it's too much for us to comprehend. So instead, we might just crack the door open slightly to mm. let enough light into the room that now we can understand what's in the room, we can make out enough about what's in the uh, in the in the light to know what it's about and so forth. So in this word picture here, the door becomes both a means of revealing the light and concealing it. At the mm. same time. And so God does something similar. When he reveals himself, he is both revealing himself spiritually and intellectually. I mean, those, those evident, those arguments are there too, but he is also simultaneously concealing himself to bring about his own purposes for our own sake. So I, I think that's a better way to think of, of revelation that it, it has to conceal. 
mm-hmm. uh, in order for us to understand anything. That makes sense because it's almost like uh, the first thing that popped in my mind was uh, Plato's analogy of the cave. Mm-hmm. When the guy, the, the three or four guys are locked in a cave, that's all they know. They just see these shadows from light behind them, you know, on the cave wall. And one of them's loosed and he's taken immediately out in the in the outside the cave and he's blinded by the light. He doesn't understand what he sees. And, you know, it, but it's, it's kind of that, that similar scenario there. But uh, I, I like yours even better because, as you said, by opening the door slightly, it allows you to see instead of blinding everyone in the process. And, and, and by the way, like that, that imagery is pretty consistent with what we see in scripture. When you think about, you know, those instances where Moses can't see God fully, you know, we see instances where the temple has restricted access and this kind of thing, like the presence of God is too much for us. Yeah. Not, not to mention we have this thing called a sin problem. <laughs> and so like, all of these things, right? Like God's, God's manifest presence is, is dangerous for us as sinners. And so God is very much interested in resolving our spiritual issues so that we can be involved with him uh, in that great perichoretic love that I was discussing. It's so amazing to, just to think. I mean, like I said, I had chill bumps when you were talking about that, just to think that we're ushered into that triune relationship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Absolutely amazing. It is, man. So do you have some final words of encouragement that you'd like to share with those who may be struggling with the sticky, thorny yeah, issue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, look, I, I think probably it's the case that uh, a lot of your listeners, you're never going to probably deal with um, the Schellenbergs of the world with the most sophisticated philosophy and, and argumentation on that level. But um, I, I will say this, there are answers on that level, at least answers that are you know, some people go and do uh, degrees and things to get jobs. I went and did, I don't know about you. I went and did my degree because I had this issue, this issue with divine hiddenness and I wanted an answer to it. And it took me a long time to find the answer to it, but there is satisfying answers to these kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that, um, like I said, you'll ever deal with um, J.L. Schellenberg per se, or philosophy per se, but if there's an answer on this level, there's most certainly an answer in a in the practical level of your life. Mm-hmm. If you're someone that's, you know, going through a tough time, you're like, where is God? Where are you? Certainly there's got to be a reason that you're not manifesting in a more direct and visible way in my life. The answer to that is yes, there is a reason. And, mm-hmm. and, and those, those reasons are truly profound. Like God is doing what is best for you. Um, and like we can talk about what that means in terms of arguments, but at the end of the day, what his word is telling us is that God is revealing himself in a way that brings about what is best for you. And so we have to be obedient and trust him. And even when we don't understand, we have to take up that old posture of faith seeking understanding, not doubt seeking justification. <laughs> and so faith seeking understanding. And if we maintain that, we'll find the answers we're looking for. If you take the pathway of doubt seeking understanding, you might look like this guy in the middle. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> oh, what a sticky situation. <laughs> Brother, we have got to get you back on the podcast. This has been a lot of fun. And I appreciate so much you coming on, being on the air with us. This, oh my goodness. 
this uh, what 40, 45 minutes has just flown by. It has just, just just a few minutes, just a few seconds ago we started. But I do want to let everybody know: go out and buy this copy of uh, of uh, Dr. Josh Waltman's book. Why Why does God seem so hidden? Uh, you'll find some fantastic answers uh, to the uh, to this sticky thorny situation brought up by uh, J. L. Schellenberg. And so we do encourage you to go uh, pick up this copy again. Why does God seem so hidden. I also want to remind everybody, next week we start our new series, our theology series on bibliology. This is a perfect segue talking about revelation. We're going to talk about the the divine revelation of God in the Bible just by, first of all, starting to ask the question, what is the Bible? So we're going to talk about that coming up next week. For Dr. Josh Waltman, this is Dr. Brian Chilton saying uh, thank you for joining us on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. May God richly bless you, and we'll see you back next time as we step into the arena of ideas. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristie.com. Have you ever had questions about heaven? Have you ever thought about what we'll do there? Will animals be found in heaven? Are NDEs real? Is heaven only going to include worshiping God through music? Or will we be able to engage in other activities? In my upcoming book, Conversations About Heaven, I reflected on the conversations I had about heaven with a woman who attended a former church I served as pastor. These conversations challenged her to see heaven in a new light. Heaven is a place where our our wildest imaginations will come true and the greatest of possibilities will be brought to actuality. Our conversations about heaven gave this woman peace and comfort that she did not have before. In my upcoming book, Conversations About Heaven, I record our conversations and go deeper into the issues and it is my hope that conversations about heaven will give you the same peace that this saintly woman received. Look for my book, Conversations About Heaven, to hit bookstores very soon. Conversations About Heaven is now available at Whiffenstock.com, Amazon.com, and anywhere that books are sold.